Thanks for listening to the Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Medical School. Hello and welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. There is no question about it. 2020 has been a tough year. All of us are dealing with a lot of new challenges and emotions right now. And for our healthcare workers on the front lines, that burden is especially heavy. Our guest today is Tina Runyon. She has a PhD in clinical psychology and is professor of family medicine and community health at UMass Medical School. Dr. Runyon counsels resident physicians and fellows and is co-founder of Tend Health, which provides mental health consultation and support to healthcare providers. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. So here we are about 10 months since the pandemic began, COVID fatigue, Mm -hmm. very real. I think a lot of us are feeling it. Can you help us break down and put into words what so many of us are feeling physically and emotionally? I can certainly, certainly try. I think everybody's individual experience is, is their unique experience, but there are some themes and some commonalities. And I think I'd like to start by giving a backdrop of how I've come to understand what is happening in terms of COVID fatigue or what is likely to be sort of the second crisis of COVID in terms of mental health issues and has been showing up for our health professionals. And the backdrop of that is really the human stress response. And our systems are so exquisitely designed to be able to tolerate and adapt to stress. We do it all the time. The stress is just any kind of pressure put on the system that requires a response. And most of the time, those responses are quite adaptive. But when the stressor is too uh, unpredictable, too big, um, too threatening, or actually when it's very chronic, which is the case that we're in now, the system gets really overwhelmed and it can't continually manifest that adaptive response to stress. And that's so much of how I've come to conceptualize you know, COVID fatigue and what's happening in terms of the mental health sequelae related to COVID is that we have a lot of dysregulation and activation at the level of our nervous system. That makes a lot of sense. It's intense, it's overwhelming, and it shows no sign of winding down. So what are some of the physical and emotional signs? Like how does this, um, how does this express itself? in our bodies and our our minds. Yeah, well, I love that you started with our bodies, Jennifer, because I think that that, when I think about the stress response, that is so much of how it can show up for people because it really is happening at a disruption of our physiology. And so within our bodies, it can show up as a racing heart, um, feelings of anxiety in the chest, gastrointestinal upset, pain, maybe new pains, maybe worsening of, of chronic pains can show up as overall body fatigue, right? Some of the signs that are not (laughs) disconnected to even a COVID infection, Um, it can show up that way. Behaviorally, it shows up for a lot of people as um, irritability, uh, decreased frustration tolerance, and so maybe snapping at people for things that you wouldn't normally snap at that you'd be able to absorb, but now just feel um, uh, untenable. uh, And... And sometimes in other ways of dialing back 
healthy responses like decreased exercise or increased eating of easy, um, accessible foods that may not be the healthiest. Or sometimes in behaviors such as, you know, drinking a little bit more alcohol than one might normally drink or returning to drinking if one hasn't been doing that for a while. And then emotionally, certainly the things that we're seeing most are heightened levels of anxiety and dysregulation of mood in terms of uh, depressed mood. And are there... what, what should trigger in people's mind? I think a lot of people will relate to some of those experiences that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point should it trigger getting professional help? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, certainly if there's any disruption in functioning, I think is a really important threshold that if people feel like, Um, I mean, none of us are really living our best lives. So I don't mean like maximal performance. If you can't reach maximal performance, sort of seek professional help. But but really in terms of baseline level of functioning is a pretty clear indicator of um, a reason to seek some additional support. Or I think if the people around you are noticing that you're not quite yourself, and again, whether that's showing up in your body, behaviorally, or emotionally, because those things will show up usually in the relationships that are closest to us and most intimate to us first. It's the people that we may not be, um, that we're around all the time, whose patterns and habits and maybe even, you know, proclivities are are (laughs) attractive and sometimes and interesting and all of a sudden become annoyances. Uh, at a rate that really starts to impact the relationship. So, so any of those. And then internally, I think, um, and this is true particularly for clinicians or anybody kind of in health professionals, that there is such a habit of masking up, sort of buttoning up in uniform and showing up and, and doing that on behalf of their profession and doing that on behalf of their patients in a really um, admirable and, and beautiful way. And um, so, so sometimes people can be showing up in that way and it's really hidden. Their level of suffering is really hidden. And so, yeah. Yeah. so I want to ask you more about that because yeah. you're right. Healthcare providers have this, you know, dual set of stressors. One's at work. Not only are they showing up, but the work itself is incredibly draining and you know, precise and emotionally difficult. And then, and then they have this added worry of, are they, you know, exposing or, you know, threatening their family by bringing the virus home in some way. So uh, I I want you to talk about that a little bit, that sort of extra burden. Yeah. I mean, the example that I can give is, you know, um, right. Most oncologists are not currently managing their own experience of cancer while caring for multiple patients in a single day that are also addressing that same health issue. And yet here we are in the time of COVID where that's exactly, exactly as you described, health professionals are uh, in therapy, we call it a bit of a parallel process. And so there's a parallel process happening for clinicians where they are carrying their own anxiety about not wanting to be the source of infection for people that they love and whose responsibility it is, you know, they feel a responsibility to protect Um, while also showing up and doing their job. 
and an added burden of, you know, a lot of people who have uh, younger kids are, are simultaneously playing teacher right now. Um, if you happen to be on a different um, spectrum in terms of your, um, t- your stage in life, you may be right. holding a lot of worry and concern about elderly parents, but most people have something else as you draw those circles out in terms of their own life that they're simultaneously holding. And that's also where I conceptualize it as a stress response. And so some of the suggestions um, for how to work with this, I think can sound very trite, simplistic, or even dismissive. Mm -hmm. If If you don't understand them on the backdrop of just trying to help with regulating one's nervous system. And so I think that's why it's important for me to frame it in this way, because I think some of the suggestions that are out there by mental health experts can sound very um, elementary. <laughs> um, but but if you understand it as trying to kind of help control your own physiological response, they're actually quite useful. But can I actually go back to a question you said in terms of when to seek help? Because I don't want this to go unmissed in terms of... Yes, of course. In terms of um, clinicians, that their private, uh, their private narrative, their private experience, more so than even kind of acting out or loss of functioning, you know, they're unlikely to be the ones who are calling out to work and not showing up, but their internal experience may be full of suffering. And so if those thoughts around not doing enough, not being enough, or thoughts around um, fear and anxiety are so compelling internally that they're causing um, emotional suffering, that would be a sign for clinicians to seek help, even if it is un, um, uh, unidentifiable to the outside world. Yeah. And I think this is so important given, you know, I'm thinking about your specialty and working with residents and fellows. So these are Mm -hmm. physicians who are in the early years of their careers and and they probably feel this extra need to prove themselves and establish themselves and, you know, work harder than anybody else. And maybe, maybe that prevents some of them from admitting their struggles. So uh, feel free to respond to that. And also, you know, if you can give us a sense of some of the tools that you advise or that you share with folks to help them, as you say, regulate that physical response. Yeah. So I love working with residents and fellows clinically for exactly the reason that you describe, which is they're just at this really precious stage of their identity development as a physician. And, um, you know, that they are going to be (laughs) defining that in the time of a global pandemic is, Um, incredibly stressful, but also remarkable in a number of ways. And there's a lot of opportunity for for inculcating that sense of, um, you know, being a physician is beyond a job. You know, it is is a calling, it is an identity. And for them to really um, own that and, and imbue that during this time is quite spectacular. And yet, what I've heard are things all along the continuum of both. This is, this is an incredible time to be, um, to be a physician. And I'm so honored and called to be able to show up in this way and to serve my community in this way. 
and I couldn't imagine doing anything else like, right, put me in coach, put me in more, put me in more, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all the way to uh, those high level of, of fear and anxiety for whatever reason, whether it's their own personal health or family members' health or just sense that um, they're being called and asked to do something on the backdrop of a lack of a, um, a larger collaboration from society in terms of um, public health and, and taking, taking personal responsibility to wear masks or to limit contact. And so feeling quite put upon, right? Feeling quite burdened and then struggling with how to reconcile that with their sort of calling of uh, being a physician and being in a helping profession. So I hear it all along the continuum. And one thing I wanna say to that is, is yeah, yes, all of those feelings um, make sense. They're all valid. Each person is coming from their own history and their own experience to this moment. And, um, and to be able to have a space to say, I don't actually want to do this. Mm. <laughs> they may still have to do it, but, but to have a space to just name that, because once we name things, we tame it. Once we can name what we're feeling and acknowledge what the feeling is, one, we're much less inclined to act on them always. And it has a way of um, actually quieting that part of our nervous system that's pretty primitive and reacting to a lot of fear and engaging the part of our, um, of our brain and our higher order functioning and reasoning, all part of this incredible prefrontal cortex that we have as human beings because we're engaging it with language. And once we begin to use words and language, we can actually downregulate our nervous system a little bit through that. It's a little slower than some of these direct techniques, which I'd like to talk about in terms yeah. of skills, if that's okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just want to make sure I heard you right. So yeah. once we name it, you can tame it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. And so what are some of the other techniques you would add to that? Yeah, the other ones I think are ones that you commonly, you know, sort of hear, which are um, all really good (laughs) advice in terms of any kind of movement, any kind of exercise, you're just working with your body's own natural um, neurochemistry to create some positive hormonal influences in your body to be able to um, help with mood, decrease anxiety and stress. So any of that is really good. Um, Sleep, obviously, again, is one that's talked about and sometimes quite elusive (laughs) and elusive because of anxiety and elusive because of schedules. And so um, because most of us have a have a higher level of activation, our sleep needs actually may be greater than when we're going, going, going. (laughs) And it may seem very um, uh, non-intuitive of why there's a need to sleep more now, even though overall activity may be decreased. I myself find that I'm actually sleeping a really like consistently nine hours a night, which I'm typically seven hours a night. And I just allow for that. Um, It it doesn't fit with my understanding of the level of activity that I have, but I'm trying to just be sensitive that, you know, that's what the biorhythms are calling for right now. Right. So and if you're able to, to, that it's, it's okay and even good to give into that. Yes. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Cause not everybody is able to. So I feel quite, there's a luxury there that I'm recognizing. Um, the other things that I, um, that I would say is to, as best you can be, 
um, diligent about the inputs and dial down the inputs where you can. Um, that our our systems are pretty sensitive and our bodies can't much tell the difference between real threats and imagined or hypothetical threats. And a lot of what's out there um, really plays on on dialing up that activation. And so if, you know, and we, we're curious in this way in that we will often um, give into the mind and body sort of rhythm of the moment. So we might treat anxiety with caffeine. We might treat sadness with, you know, a beer. Like we actually, we, you know, if you've ever had the experience of being sad and then turning on a sad song. Mm. <laughs> that there is this like turning towards. And so if you're feeling really activated to go to the news, to go to the internet, find more information, seek more information. And actually what might be called for in that case is really dialing down the inputs so that you just allow the system a little bit of a, a break. Right. Reduce mm -hmm. the stimuli. Exactly. To the extent that you can. Okay. Those are all good. Yeah. Good, good, good. Uh, concrete things that we we can at least try to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and stimuli can happen. You know, visual stimuli. So um, while we're going into a period of of winter, um, which has its own kind of unique beauty, particularly with the snowstorm that we had, but if you can shift your visual inputs, or um, our systems are very responsive to sound and smell. Hmm. And so, and those actually bypass the thinking part of our brain. So music um, and smell actually is probably the most potent activator of our um, sympathetic nervous system, of that, of that fight or flight system, um, but also that calming and relaxation system. So if you have particular smells that really um, are helpful for you, and this is, this is one of those where I feel like it sounds so trite, but unless you understand the, <laughs> the neurobiology of it, um, but smell and, and calming and pleasant smells actually will dial down that system. No, and I'm actually glad to hear you validate that. Like a little, you know, aromatherapy to the, to the extent that you can work that into your day. And, and even, you know, I find great, uh, I'm a big believer in like just the power of like a deep breath, yes. <laughs> deep yeah. conscious breaths. Maybe it's while I'm washing my hands, you know, yeah. per the CDC guidelines and all of that. Um, just those little moments can sort of like let go of some stress, get the shoulders back down a little bit. Yes. They tend to creep up. Yes, yes. And finding those places in our bodies where we hold that tension. Um, a long, deep breath, particularly a long exhale. If you can marry that with some sentiment around, um, you know, gratitude mm. for your own, you know, sort of well-being or compassion for other well-being. So for clinicians in particular, I love this sort of one long breath between video calls, between beds, between rooms to kind of honor and and um, it's sort of a little ritual around sort of ending with one person, starting with the next. And you mm. can do that. I mean, we all have to breathe. So you can marry, you know, one or two sort of intentional breaths, almost with a sense of may you be well. 
Mm, and that does seem like something that uh, caregivers and health care providers in particular could integrate into their yeah. practice and their routines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess I, one of the last things I want to ask you about is, um, you know, this this um, concept of like healthcare heroes as hero, uh, healthcare workers as heroes. Yeah. Uh, and this heroic spirit has been really highlighted dramatically during the pandemic, especially early on. And of, of course, it's well-deserved and and the healthcare workers deserve all of the public support that they're getting. But I can also imagine that for healthcare providers who see people denying that the virus is real, mm-hmm. even some who they're treating, mm-hmm. that just must be so hard. So how can providers keep that compassion and that empathy that you just mentioned front and center while doing really stressful work? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think that term is so um, infused with uh, tension in a way, because I do think it is well-deserved and it's nice to have that recognition. And yet I've also talked with some people who really bristle at the term because, you know, our sense of heroes, um, heroes don't cry on their car ride home from the hospital, um, you know, pulling into their garage like that. So, so some people feeling like I, I, I don't feel like a hero. I'm breaking under this stress and, and to have that expectation actually feels like one more unmet, um, expectation. And so I do think it is, um, it's a, (laughs) it's a complex, um, concept. And in terms of how to sort of stay in that place of, of compassion and our, our minds, again, the sort of back to our nervous system will always go to the threat or to the negative. We have a, we have a negativity bias. We will incline, our minds are inclined in that way and inclined toward threat for very good reason, right? To keep us safe and to keep us alive. And so we'll, will incline towards the people not following these guidelines. Um, And that can evoke a lot of anger and frustration. And that's probably the right emotion for the situation because what they're seeing day in and day out doesn't square with other people's worldviews. And the the strategy that um, that I've used because this gets into a sort of, a, I know we don't have time, but a deeper conversation around sort of, we're not all living in a shared reality and that people's facts are curated through, <laughs> through very sophisticated algorithms and mechanisms in terms of the media, news, social media. And so the practice that I've used in meeting that is one where I will, I will almost always like put my hand on my heart and I will say, just like me. Just like me, this person wants to be safe and healthy and happy. Just like me, this person wants the people they love to be safe and healthy and happy. Now, granted, their strategy for doing that is quite different than <laughs> um, than a strategy, I think, that is um, one that appreciates that this has to be a collaborative public health effort. But... Um, but I will try to incline myself instead of get, staying in that place of rage to to really see that just like me, right, this person is not trying to put their kids in harm way. 
they're operating from a different set of facts and a different set of assumptions. But just like me, they want to be healthy and safe. Wow, and that's safe. pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Um, yeah, especially when, uh, when uh, on the flip side, I would imagine it's just so hard not to give in to some of those vulnerable moments for all of us, but especially for healthcare providers who mm-hmm. are really dealing with vast amounts of stress on a daily basis. And so to not expect perfection, I think that's the other, I, <laughs> I, I to not expect perfection of oneself. Yeah. A good reminder. Well, Dr. Runyon, thank you so much for your time. And, and thank you for all the work that you're doing um, to help keep our, our frontline workers healthy and able to help more patients than ever before. No, it's really my privilege. Thank you, Jennifer. Keep up to date with everything happening at UMass Medical School by following us on Facebook at UMass Med, on Twitter at UMass Medical, and on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School.